So I want to uh, fill out our understanding of the rest of the of rest of the first paragraph of the text. And this just so we know what the text means. And then I want to move to working particularly with challenging thoughts and emotions as a key part of our practice. And that latter emphasis goes somewhat beyond what's in the text, but it's actually more at the center of what we actually do in our daily lives with this foundation. So I'm wanting to bring that in, but I also want you want to be clear that the uh, text itself is pointing to mindfulness of certain phenomena and it actually is rather different from what we actually do, <laughs> most of us in our practice. Okay. But there are things to learn. So the, the first instructions were on looking at greed, hatred, delusion and their absence. I think that is very, very applicable and to our daily practice and could be really uh, brought in. It's really tracking. And I, I can think of having done retreats where my primary emphasis was to look and see where I got stuck, where there was something resisting the present moment and really focus on that. And that's the essence of the first instructions. And then we have the second set of instructions which uh, go like this. One understands contracted mind as contracted mind and distracted mind as distracted mind. It gives a whole set of series. And most of these have the form of listing a wholesome quality and then an unwholesome quality, much like in the first instructions which were about greed, hatred, delusion on the one hand and then their absence on the other. We're calling that kusala is the word. It's usually translated as wholesome, which again I think is not a great translation because it, I don't know, it sounds overly moralistic to me. <laughs> but anyway, some people like the, like the term skillful which is, has less of that connotation. It's something which is basically the unwholesome or the akusala is conducive to suffering. The kusala is conducive to freedom. That's the distinction. Okay? And so uh, I like the word skillful for that. And so the first one listed both uh, unskillful, greed, hatred, and delusion, and then skillful, their absence. The second instructions are about uh, contracted and distracted. And these are actually um, both unskillful. <laughs> contracted mind, and these are actually referring to the teaching of the five hindrances, which many of you know about. The five hindrances basically to mindfulness. And those five are really the first and second are the uh, wanting and the aversion, so greed and hatred. The third is generally translated as sloth and torpor, sometimes occurring after lunch. <laughs> Maybe a moment to study it right now. <laughs> uh, uh, so it's the sleepiness, the dullness, and so forth. And this is what's meant in the text by contracted mind. And then distracted mind is the opposite. It's the restless mind, which is the fourth of the hindrances. The fifth is doubt, particularly doubt about the teachings or about one's own capacity, one's own 
potential for awakening. Doubt is often said to be the hardest because it can paralyze one's practice. And what we're asked to do is in these second set of instructions are really to be mindful of when there's dullness or sleepiness. Again, it's a tricky thing to be mindful of, like being mindful of delusion, right? Because how can I know the unknown known? And being mindful of dullness or sleepiness is hard because it's almost like when I'm sleepy, I don't know I'm sleepy, and I'm getting sleepier. (laughs) And so this is an interesting instruction. One knows the contracted mind is contracted mind. One knows sleepiness. You really track that you're sleepy and notice it. And this is something that we particularly can develop in the context of formal meditation. Or you might also do it when you're actually sleepy going to sleep and say, and said, I am now experiencing contracted mind. What is it like? Actually something interesting to do. Some of you may have done this in meditation or in retreats where it's actually highly interesting to study when you're sleepy, when you're dull, and to know that it's happening. So again, we want to name it. I know that this is happening. I'm dull. (laughs) But I am clear that I'm dull. (laughs) And I hope when you do it, there's also some humor like this, because it is. You know, this is what is called in the study of theater, irony. (laughs) And there's a sense of, uh, you know, the clarity is like something that's not fully consonant with the dullness, right? It's interesting. And it's like I'm 90% dull, but 10% clear. It was like that example I gave earlier. That's very interesting. We don't often notice that, right? And so what one can do, and can do this in a meditation when you're feeling sleepy. Of course, if you can try to avoid being sleepy, that's helpful. But you can actually study sleepiness, study dullness, stay with it with mindfulness, And many of you know that it's actually very interesting to study. One of the things you can find out is that dullness and sleepiness is often not about needing sleep. Right? That's what's interesting to study. Sometimes it's simply about the energy being unbalanced in one's body or stress. Right? We can be sleepy or tired. You don't actually physically need sleep, but we need to de-stress or exercise some, so things are more balanced, right? And sometimes we're meditating and we think, oh, I really need a nap, especially happens on retreats. But often there's something else happening, and sometimes in paying attention to the sleepiness and the dullness, it actually gives the energy that balances the system, and we notice sleepiness and dullness actually sometimes going away like clouds disappearing before the sun, and all of a sudden the energy and the alertness are totally there, whereas five minutes earlier there was sleepiness. Anyone have that, know that kind of experience? It's very interesting. Sometimes also in retreats, uh, particularly, but also in meditation, sometimes there's sleepier dullness because of psychological resistance to going into something. That happens sometimes. That's harder to 
discern, but sometimes it's there. So you see, it can be very interesting to study dullness. Not dull at all, necessarily. (laughs) And then we also can study distracted minds. So here, again, we want to... um, We want to know that. We want to know distraction. Oh, I'm really distracted. One of the reasons for knowing dullness and distraction, really one of the main reasons for mindfulness in general, is that if we know what's happening, it is, it can be the basis for a skillful response. If we don't know what's happening, it's much harder to respond skillfully. Obvious in a certain way, right? That if I if I say, I'm sleepy, and then I say, what would my wisdom say would be a good thing to do because I'm sleepy, we might get a very skillful response. But if I don't know I'm sleepy and I just react automatically, it may not be so skillful. Same thing with distracted mind. I know I'm distracted. I might notice I'm distracted by one recurring thought. I notice that, I'm distracted about the one recurring thought, I'm mindful of it, that permits a wise response, which could be one of a number of things. It might be to um, reflect. Let's say my one recurring thought is um, about financial issues, let's say. Okay? I, and I'm, I'm just thinking about it all, and, uh, and it's just occurring over and over again, uh, there might be a lot of skillful ways to respond. One might be saying, I'm going to talk with someone who's wise about finances and try to work this detail out. could be to uh, decide now is the time for action, right? That would be a wise response. It might be to check into the emotions and be more mindful, see where this is coming from. Maybe it's coming from, actually not coming from me, but it's from one comment that my mother made. Anyone know that one? <laughs> right? And I might actually not know that it's happening. I just might be preoccupied by the one recurring thought. But when I reflect, I just really reacted just like I was six years old from a comment my mother made. Right? That could happen like that. So this is the second set of instructions to look at contracted and distracted minds. Make some sense? And that's, that these are valuable to do, very valuable to do. And then the um, third, the remaining instructions are to understand exalted mind as, as exalted mind, unexalted mind as unexalted mind. These, now we're going back to the wholesome and the unwholesome. Okay? Understand surpassed mind as surpassed mind, unsurpassed mind as unsurpassed mind, concentrated mind as concentrated, liberated as liberated and unliberated is liberated. What is happening here is there is a sequence of instructions on mindfulness that go from the root causes of suffering all the way to liberation. What we have in about five different steps is a movement from the uninstructed practitioner given instructions at the beginning all the way towards liberation. And the remaining, those, those, other, uh, those other three, actually I guess there are four instructions, let's see, is to 
we have surpassed, let's see, we have exalted mind, unexalted, surpassed, unsurpassed, concentrated, unconcentrated, and liberated, non-liberated. There are actually four further instructions, and those are all getting at different aspects of um, development of concentration and qualities of liberation. And so from a broad view, you can see where this is going. So in this very model of mindfulness of particular states, there's instructions on how to move right from the beginning, where you're instructed particularly look for greed, hatred, and delusion, all the way to the development of uh, concentration, the development of uh, uh, a sense of freedom or not. And this can be very, very helpful. Again, concretely, the quality of uh, exalted mind, sometimes it's translated as uh, great and narrow. And this is related especially to the quality of metta, or the sense of, is there a quality of kindness and good heart, or is that absent? The surpassable and unsurpassable refers to level of concentration. The third relates to also to concentration. When am I concentrated? When am I not concentrated? And then liberated, when am I free? When am I not free? Maybe for our purposes to simplify, the ones that might be especially useful is to know when I'm concentrated and know when I'm not concentrated. Again, we can see how this would be very pragmatic. Okay, I'm really distracted right now. I'm not concentrated. What's a wise response? That might happen at the beginning of a sitting. I might be really, really distracted, and I say to myself, okay, third foundation of mindfulness, instruction number five, apply right now. Not concentrated. Not concentrated. And then I can say, what would be skillful for developing concentration? That's one of the reasons it's valuable. And same thing, and also to know when I am concentrated, I might do other things. Then the last instruction is about liberation or freedom. When is there actually, when am I actually free? And for the purposes of our practice, that sense of freedom is a sense of absence of greed, hatred, and delusion. So it can be very ordinary. You know, I'm here, maybe that contentedness. I'm not wanting anything. I'm not not wanting anything. I'm relatively clear. We might say that that is a moment of freedom. Again, it's something ordinary. We don't often track it. And again, part of the, you know, part of what I learned from this myself is to be aware how many beautiful, wonderful states are there that we often just take for granted. And that's what this is really asking us to look at to really appreciate the moments of freedom. You know, or even when I notice I'm really angry, but I'm okay to be with it, I'm not resisting it, I'm not grabbing hold of it, that is a moment of freedom even when there's anger. That's interesting. And again, I think, you know, practically speaking, as in the example where someone might be 90% in distress and 10% with clarity, same thing with freedom. 
I can, if I, I can really tune into the freedom and it can expand experientially. You know, when I really notice I am free now and we feel the freedom. And there are these interesting experiential techniques I learned from one of my teachers where one actually tunes in experientially. Maybe you can even try it right now. This is not in the text. This is coming from Donald. <laughs> okay. But it's an interesting technique where um, maybe tune, tune in right now to some positive quality. Might be clarity, could be contentedness, even if something else is there, right? How many people are tuning into clarity? How many are tuning into contentedness? What are some other qualities you're tuning into? Just can calm. What, another, others? What? Relief, okay. So tune into those and really feel that, even if it's 10% of your experience, something, something that is uh, positive from a meditative point of view. Could be just mindfulness. And locate where that lives in your body right now. And be with that quality at the level of the body. And let it expand. Let it get bigger. So maybe it starts as 10%. See if you can get to 30 or 50% of your experience. So that sense of clarity or calm or contentedness is growing, is expanding. How many people did you have a sense that the quality was expanding some? You were able to touch that. That's a very interesting technique, isn't it? If you experience that. You can try it another time. Um, because it actually is a way to working, we're getting a little ahead of ourselves, working with distressing situations. Where you find, it's like you find the positive and you connect with that rather than getting so caught in the distressing. And you can actually work with that and let it get bigger. Again, that's not from the text. (laughs) But it's an application. So with this last instruction, we can tune into those moments of feeling some freedom. And tune into that. And again, let those really know that. And it can actually really change things to know, oh, because part of what we learn is that we actually are freer than we think. That there are a lot of moments of freedom. And we can keep tuning into them. Okay. Any questions about the completing these, these uh, further instructions in the text?
partly I just wanted to really make clear the text. I think what I've suggested as being valuable to bring into your practice uh, pragmatically are, is to uh, focus especially on that, uh, on maybe the first, second, fifth, and sixth instructions. The first is greed, hatred, delusion, to really know when those are there. Second, to be able to identify when the sleepiness or the restlessness is there. And then to know when there's concentration or not. And also to know when there's uh, freedom or not. Am I free? Am I stuck right now? Right? And to know I'm stuck, again, it's like the principle knowing what's there permits skillful response. That's the principle. Please, let's, do we have the mic? Okay. <coughs> Uh, okay. A lot of these seems to be related with the hindrances. Yeah. Um, and uh, I, I didn't read the the, the, the fourth uh, foundation yet, but uh, I saw through the summary that they also part of the fourth foundation of mindf- mindfulness. So what's yeah. the difference? Uh, what's the, yeah. Okay. Great question. So uh, the second instructions here about contracted mind and distracted mind. I'm interpreting, as, ref- as do most commentators, as referring to the teaching of the hindrances. I think what's um, somewhat different with the fourth foundation, the way I interpret it, is that the fourth foundation does include skillful response. It's the bringing of the wisdom factor more into the um, practice of mindfulness. So the third foundation still, the way I interpret it, is still, um, there, there are two ways that they're different. One way is that this is still at the level of primarily being mindful and not responding. I've been framing this as really valuable in large part because when we know what's happening, we can respond. So partly this is... Uh, still just about exploring things and not yet about responding. Okay. The other thing is that the, the, uh, I interpret the first three foundations as being about the individual constituents of experience. And the fourth foundation is more about looking at patterns of experience. It's almost like we work with the first three foundations. Oh yeah, I get really skillful at looking at a thought, at looking at an emotion, at looking at sleepiness, and so forth. And the first three are just about, okay, looking at the body, and so forth. In the fourth foundation, we bring in looking at maps and larger patterns of experience. That's where we might more readily look at what triggered that, what led me to have that thought, what's the causal chain, That comes in more in the fourth foundation, and part of it would be using the framework of the hindrances, which includes also how to respond uh, as well. So it's partly looking at a map, looking at patterns, and then uh, partly also the uh, lack of attention to response in the third foundation. But yeah, thank, thank you.
And so th this is uh, the four foundations of mindfulness are to some extent sequential, you know. This would be like a training curriculum. Uh, and of course, many people would have already had the teaching of the five hindrances, even as they were doing this. So it's, yeah, but uh, I, think, I think what we have in the text, and you can see that there are certain sequences of learning. We saw one of them right here in the six instructions, that there's a movement from the most gross types of ways that we get stuck all the way to liberation through developing concentration in the very instructions. It's right there. So we could say almost the whole spiritual path, in a sense, is captured in these six instructions. Uh, yeah, that's, yeah. Uh, please, Madison. I really loved what you said about expanding the clarity, which in a sense would start to shrink the reactivity. Yeah. And I get having the moment of clarity and saying, oh, this is happening. And I get having the moment of, wow, this triggers anger or defensiveness. And then the whole show kind of shuts down after that. And I'm wondering how one expands that clarity. I realize that third step for me would go into the reactivity, and so I guess my question is how does one kind of expand the clarity enough so that you don't go into the reactivity? Yeah. How to expand the clarity so we don't go into the reactivity? Um, partly this is going into what I've talked about as response, which we're going to get to I think, uh, after the walking meditation. <laughs> okay. uh, in detail, we'll have some taste of it earlier, so it'll, it'll be okay. okay. Um, so, um, again, I'm making that distinction between, strictly speaking, what's in the text, which is about mindfulness and not response. Uh, but I wanted to, as part of this day, have a significant emphasis on developing skillful responses, particularly to challenging thoughts and emotions as part of the day. So, had, so we'll probably, uh, I'll probably reserve most of the response to what comes in a moment, right? Uh, but the, um, the general answer would be to uh, use the tools of mindfulness and wisdom. And so, simply being mindful is going to take us out of reactivity. Let's say I have, a, I'm being really reactive and self-judgmental. Something's happened, right? And I'm being really self-judgmental, you know, and I'm kind of, on my own, I'm kind of in a self-judgmental semi-funk where I'm, you know, just saying nasty things to myself and maybe I'm engaging in familiar behavior when I get a little bit depressed, okay? Something like that. And, and I'm, in other words, a lot of reactivity. And what's going to help expand clarity? Partly just knowing that this is happening. That we, that's mindfulness, right? That, and, and if I actually say to myself, I am going into my familiar pattern, right? That's mindfulness. And that, uh, that sets the possibility of being responsive, right? 
So a lot of mindfulness is going to tend to move us out of reactivity. And then I can use other tools like I can reflect. Where has this uh, continual self-flagellation led me in the past? Not to a good place. Oh, I remember the teaching. There's a teaching called the teaching of the two arrows, which I gave last time, right? The teaching of the two arrows says, and Sylvia Borstein in the retreat we just did uh, gave a version of this. The teaching of the two arrows is essentially, if I want to really make it brief, it's that we're all sometimes shot by an arrow, which is called the arrow of pain. We sometimes have unpleasant experiences. We have physical pain, we have emotional pain, there's injustice, lack of fairness sometimes. All of us have some version of that. The Buddha said this is like being shot by the arrow, which he calls the first arrow. He said, what distinguishes a practitioner from a non-practitioner is that the non-practitioner tends, because of the first arrow, the arrow of pain, tends to react. And I like to say, to shoot a second arrow either towards oneself or towards another. You know, so someone says something nasty to me, I receive it, first arrow, I say something nasty right back, I shoot the second arrow at that person, or I judge myself, second arrow, right? And the teaching is to learn to be with the first arrow so you can avoid shooting the second arrow. Very powerful teaching. It's actually a very condensed version of the teaching of the Four Noble Truths, in my view. And it's a very powerful and effective one. When we're in distress, that's the first arrow. Can I, because of, this, of what's happened that's been difficult, can I not shoot the second arrow of judgment? So we're already getting into response now, right, from your question, the question of response. Not shooting the second arrow is a huge way of responding skillfully and uh, not getting so caught by reactivity, right? And, and that can come out of some clarity that this is what I'm doing. I'm starting to shoot the second arrow of judging myself because something difficult has happened. I can watch it happening and I say, I'm not going to go there. You know? I'm not going to do that. And that's related to Michael's question about wise effort which was one of the principles of wise effort, is know what to do when you get stuck. One of the things to do when you get stuck is not keep shooting the second arrow. And I can't resist, I wanted to give what Sylvia Borstein gave as another way to talk about the two arrows. How many of you have heard the two arrows? Uh, Isn't it a wonderful teaching? It goes so far. And again, when I work with people, a lot of what I tell them, especially if there's some distress, is really track carefully whether you're shooting the second arrow. It goes so far. And a tremendous amount of conflict in our world, interpersonally, between groups, nations, are the groups are shooting second arrows at each other. And so this teaching could be, is a peace teaching, really. It's a teaching about uh, uh, peace, and that's what peacemakers do. They uh, prevent people from shooting the second arrows, and especially try to just deal with the underlying pain of the situation, which is causing the arrows to be shot in the first place, or or leading to them being shot, I should say. And so, uh, do you want to hear Sylvia's characterization? Because it's it's kind of that moment in the day when um, 
it can be a little bit of a low time. When I, when I have meetings with groups which meet all day, about this time of the day is the time for what we call chips and salsa. <laughs> Bring it out. So this is the version. Of, it's actually a food version of the uh, two arrows. So it goes like this. So several of you were at the retreat, so I think, I'll get, I, think I should get it right. But this was concerning, I think, uh, uh, one of her uh, children, uh, grandchildren, maybe, who was uh, at a bar mitzvah. And this child, and at the bar mitzvah, people eat gefilte fish. And there's also, which a lot of people don't like, you know, I'm Jewish background, I couldn't stand it, <laughs> personally. It's definitely first arrow. <laughs> and this young kid, yeah, typically one eats uh, along with the gefilte fish, which is, what is it? What you, one, 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 but what is gefilte fish? It's kind of like a cod. Anyway, it's, it's a particular way of making fish that a lot of people don't like, but it's traditional. A lot of people evidently like it or they wouldn't be hopefully doing it continually. But one also has horseradish with the gefilte fish. And the, 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 the young boy said to Sylvia, how can you make something terrible more terrible? <laughs> you add horseradish to gefilte fish. <laughs> so, and so this is, I instantly heard this. We just heard this a few days ago. And we just taught, finished teaching actually yesterday, a seven-day metta retreat. And this was part of Sylvia's evening talk. Uh, several days ago, and I instantly heard it as a very down-home version of the teaching of the two arrows, which is the two arrows are really about something terrible has happened. I will make it more terrible <laughs> by blaming myself or blaming others or getting into a fight or whatever, and can I just have the gefilte fish without the horseradish? <laughs> so... Okay, I'm glad. Okay, so everyone revived? Was that the equivalent of chips and salsa? Okay. Um, great. So, um, does that get that, that Madison? So, so we're, we're starting to get into part of what is skillful response. Okay, so the other, um, the other piece that I wanted to bring in now, we ha I think we have a sense of what the actual text means, at least the first paragraph. We'll get to the second paragraph maybe after after the walking. The second paragraph is actually, a, those of you know have been coming to the other day-longs, is actually a stock paragraph that's in all the other foundations. Okay? It actually is not particularly uh, keyed to the instructions for the third foundation. It's what is repeated at the end of every one of the foundations about, I mean, actually I could maybe just briefly go over it now and just do it on the brief side. One abides con uh, contemplating Chitta, mind and heart, internally, and then it says externally, and then internally and externally. The usual way we interpret this as internally means practicing as we've been doing meditatively, looking at it in terms of our own inner experience. Externally typically is interpreted as meaning noticing these qualities in other beings, particularly people. Right? So I note, that's why I was saying earlier, 
one can notice, oh, that person's really reactive. And I find it actually supremely helpful to be able to identify with mindfulness, this is happening with this other person. Isn't it helpful? Again, oh, that person is being very judgmental. And, and actually, and, I, and the judgment's coming right at me because typically I get defensive. All of us mostly get defensive when judgments come at us, right? And can I actually be mindful and say, oh, oh, that person is being judgmental. Yes, the content, and the content is directed at me. <laughs> right? But actually there's a hope if we actually notice that we might not get so hooked into the judgment. Typically, when we get hooked into it, there's no mindfulness at all. We're just defensive. Right? And so noticing or noticing that person's really angry. And then we, with the mindfulness, we can bring the wisdom. What's the proper response, right? Again, the key here is that mindfulness makes possible wise response. That's the heart of everything we're doing all day. Mindfulness makes possible wise response. And so the third then means internally and externally. That means it's actually possible to do both of these at the same time to track ourselves and also track others. This is not easy. I actually uh, am very interested in this one and teach on this when I teach retreats on skillful speech and on what, what we call relational awareness practice. It's way too much to go into here, but just to say that this is what this is pointing to, the possibility of having mindfulness in the normal flow of daily life where there's some degree of tracking internally some degree of tracking externally. This is an intermediate or advanced capacity, not a beginning capacity at all. It takes, and I find it's actually not easy at all to have that, but I think that's what this passage is is pointing to. And then it says, or else one abides contemplating the arising factors or the vanishing factors or the both arising and vanishing factors. And this is particularly related to what I was talking about earlier as the noticing sometimes of what triggers that thought. What's the causal chain? How does this arise? And then how does it pass away? And really noticing that. And that's something we can also do. What, what triggered that uh, angry thought? What, how did it arise? And then what led to it passing away? And so that's something, that's something to study. Or else mindfulness that there is mind and heart is simply established to the extent necessary to have knowledge and mindfulness. I think this is really just saying that we have a very basic mindfulness of what's going on. Enough to, uh, enough to really track what's going on. And then the last line really points to the results of this one abides independent, not clinging to anything in the world. And so it's really pointing to how the results of this are pointing to freedom. You know, in the beginning of the text on the foundations of mindfulness, it says, this is the direct path for the purification of beings. And it's the purification from greed, hatred, and delusion. So that, that is a short account of that second paragraph. But again, it's a very standard one. 
And you can find in the Analyo book a very, very nice account of all of that in, in quite some detail. But I think I want to not really linger so much there, although if there are questions, we can come back to it. And give a little bit more attention now to, um, are you ready to move on to actually studying thoughts and emotions, particularly difficult ones? And then we'll, we'll do that briefly, and then we'll do a walking, okay? okay. But did that make, now I, hopefully, we have a pretty good working understanding of every line of the text, okay? Which, which I wanted, that was one of my goals for today. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.